This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. On today's show, we're talking about movies we saw during this year's South by Southwest Festival that ran from March 16th to the 20th. Normally every year, the music and film industry descend upon Austin, Texas for an exciting week of screenings, concerts, and talks. But obviously, with the ongoing pandemic, the festival switched over to an all-digital event. Interestingly enough, last year's iteration of South by Southwest was one of the very first casualties of COVID-19, cancelled about a week out from when it was supposed to happen. Joining me on the show to talk about what we saw is Rachel Ho, owner of rachelkh.com, and a voice that you'll recognize most recently from episode 139, Celebrating Asian American Cinema. Rachel, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So it was kind of fun. We got to pretend like we were in Austin for a week. Uh, I know yeah. I have a friend that uh, that you likes to go down uh, every year. And so she's watching the concerts at home. And normally when you're in Austin, you get tacos everywhere. And so she was ordering tacos to eat while she was watching the concerts. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Actually, I like that. Just bring If you can't go there, bring it to you. Why exactly. not? Exactly. So, so shout out to Katrina Lott for doing that and uh, being the <laughs> smartest person I know. Uh, but yeah, this is my first time doing South by Southwest. I was just sort of curious about, uh, for you, what you thought, how their all digital platform may be stacked up to other film festivals that you've attended virtually in the last year. So the only other ones I did was TIFF and then, uh, Cinefest in the Sudbury. Um, TIFF's website's never good. I mean, it's never that great. I think it has a reputation for being a little bit dodgy, but, um, I actually thought TIFF platform was better than South by Southwest. I found that there were just a few kind of funny problems in terms of like searching for a movie or uh, looking looking for stuff like looking for the schedule. It was a little bit maybe just too packed in and not um, not organized well enough. I don't know. How how'd you find it though? Yeah, I, I also did San Fest Sudbury last year and, and that one was excellent it was very minimalist yeah. in its design it was very clear of the movie is playing from this time until this time you have yeah. this long to watch it that sort of stuff so it was just very clear and concise about what it was doing whereas this there was a little bit of confusion sometimes movies would pop up i was like oh i'm excited to see this one and they would say yeah but you can't watch it until starting tomorrow and i was like well, then why are you showing it to me today so yeah it's uh, a good point i remember the cinefest one um if there was something that wasn't available outside of Canada or outside of even Ontario. Like I think that there were some things that were geo-blocked by province. Mm-hmm. Um, it stated really explicitly like right there that it's only going to be aired here or like in, in this region. Um, but South by Southwest, they had a lot that was geo-blocked to just the state. Um, and it, they, I think they published a list eventually of like, this is what's going to be global. This is what's going to be for, for America only. Um, but when I was looking at, they have like a chat box in each of the different movies. And I would see people come on and be like, this is a Brazilian movie. How I'm in Brazil. How come I can't watch it? And everyone's like, well, it's, it's American only. So it would have been nice if they made that even more clear. Like I know it was written somewhere that it was, but there were a lot of people who seemed to be really confused by the fact that, you know, things were geo-blocked. And it would kind of suck if you bought um, like a pass ahead of time, not realizing that a lot of movies weren't, available to you, uh, which I think happened to quite a few people. I think that happened at TIFF as well. Um, I remember seeing on Reddit, people didn't realize that it was going to be geoblocked to Canada. Um, and they all bought tickets, not, not realizing, yeah, I can't watch it. Even with a VPN, you couldn't watch it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely frustrating. I wish there was some sort of 
filter bar that we we would have been yeah. able to use just because like yeah. there's so many movies. They also were showing shorts and music videos and yeah. uh, like several episodes from like TV series and things like that. So there's a lot going on. So I wish there was a bit better way of like filtering, you know, what's a feature film, what's a short film, what's, you know, music video, that sort of stuff, what's playing in Canada, what's playing worldwide, all that sort of stuff where it would just kind of, unless you could actually see it, you couldn't watch it. And then you're wondering Absolutely. about different stuff and their search bar wasn't great. So it just, there, it was, you know, they've had basically a year to work on this and I'm a little disappointed that it wasn't cleaned up. Um, but yeah, it's, <laughs> I've, I've had worse experiences digitally, but I've definitely had way better ones. <laughs> yeah. And you're right. Like they've had a year. They knew that it was going to come to this. Like, I, I think, I don't think anybody figured it was going to, especially after TIFF had gone, um, Sundance, I think they did it digitally as well. Didn't they? Like they, they were just at the end of January. Mm-hmm. So I think like they, they knew it was going to happen that they were going to have to go online and you're right. Why, why not? I can't imagine it. Not that to say it's not difficult, but I feel like you can hire some good people to do it. And South by Southwest isn't a small platform, like Cinefest Sudbury, that's small. And you're right. They did it perfectly. Like I actually really like their, they probably had the best one because it was just really simple. Yeah. And maybe that's what it is. I think maybe, maybe South by Southwest just overthought it a little bit and tried to get a little bit too fancy. Yeah. Yeah. They probably had bigger issues considering that they have yeah. to like, have to platform everything and you know worrying about how to filter and <laughs> have clear labels yeah. was maybe a little secondary <laughs> but it's important though i mean especially if your entire festival is going to be online like you you have to make it easy for the people who spent i remember what the past i think the past is like a couple hundred dollars like it's not cheap so you know you kind of expect okay if i'm going to spend that much and when they were selling the tickets i like the geo block thing is is a bit of a a pet peeve of mine because I just think that even TIFF, like they should, people, they should be really clear about the fact that if you don't live in whatever region, the States or Canada or wherever mm-hmm. it is, um, you can't watch it. So tell them that before you buy a pass or you buy tickets. Um, yeah. Otherwise that's a bit like a little, you're bordering on like misrepresentation there because especially because I don't think they were able to do a refund. Um, I know TIFF, they couldn't, you couldn't do a refund. Um, after a certain period of time. So people were, I think, just trying to give their tickets away because they thought, well, I I have it now. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I I think that's a bit, like, that needs to get worked on because, um, again, like, again, it wasn't like it was a shock that this was going to have to be digital. So if they knew that there was going to have to be some geo blocks, that's fine. I understand that. But at least make it clear for people when they're buying tickets so that they know what they're buying. Yeah, especially since I think, as film festivals move forward and, you know, things reopen, people are vaccinated and the health issues get under control. I don't think that festivals are going to do away with an online platform. I think this gives them an avenue to uh, be able to sell more tickets and things like that. Obviously, there, there are certain things, you know, we, we look on the, the platform for South by Southwest and it would say only a certain amount of uh, spots are available. So you had to reserve it basically, which mm-hmm. is fine. Uh, unfortunately, you know, distributors supersede what the festival wants to do. I know TIFF was the same problem where a, a lot of people were frustrated where uh, some of the bigger films would only have like one screening and only X amount yeah. of people were able to watch it at the time. And, you know, it's tough. It's frustrating. But that's stuff that we can't 
control. We can't fight it. We can't complain about it. That's distributors deciding how they want yeah. their movies to be seen. Sometimes it even goes above distributors as well and, and the money that's involved. But mm-hmm. it being more clearly laid out, that would be great. Also, I think the other, you know, if I was to complain one more thing about South by Southwest, not for me, but this idea of uh, viewers were not able to buy individual tickets. You could only buy in yeah. festival pass. So I was saying, right. people were yeah. like, Hey, I'd love to watch this movie except for it cost me $500 to watch it. I'm not spending yeah. that much to watch one movie. And it, so it's funny. My complaint, the tip was the opposite, which was why don't they just give you a pass? Like mm-hmm. why weren't they just selling a pass? But you're absolutely right. Like why, when, why commit to one or the other really like I, again cinefest i funny enough the small little sudbury film festival they had both individual tickets plus a pass that you could purchase mm-hmm. um and again i don't think it's that that's a pricing thing like i don't think it's that tough to do and i i completely agree with you i think that film festivals are going to have some sort of digital arm going forward i don't know what that's going to look like but i don't think that they're just going to abandon it completely and it would be really nice like, you're right we can't we can't really you can complain but nothing's going to happen with in terms of uh, the geoblock stuff and from the studios or from the distributors but it would be really nice of them if they could like ease up a little bit on it specifically if for instance if, it, if there's a canadian movie showing in south by southwest it would be nice if they would just let at like at least canada have access to it or like like i was talking about the brazilian movie if you could open it up to people in brazil yeah. I think that would be nice, <laughs> but it's your, you know, it's your country's uh, film creator. Why not give them some access as well? But yeah, I, I completely agree about the pass to the single ticket thing. I think have both and they can make more money that way anyways, too, I think. Because you'll have people who are willing to do single ticket or like bunch it, like you can buy five tickets and cost this much money, whatever. I don't know. We should basically run a film festival is what we're trying to say here. I would love to. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think we've complained enough. I think we should talk about the things we liked. We ended up seeing sure. the two of us six movies. And I got to say, from what I saw, I enjoyed everything that I saw. There was a ton that I wanted to see, obviously, where the way uh, things were only screening at certain times and only available for a few days at a time meant it was difficult to watch everything that I would have loved to have seen. But from what I saw, mm-hmm. I was very happy with what, it, what their selection was. Same. Um, I actually wasn't too familiar with South by Southwest in terms of what their offerings were, just simply because I've never gone to Austin, Texas to, to watch it. So I kind of ignored it. I knew it existed, of course, but um, I didn't know what kinds of movies uh, they go for because I know each festival kind of has like a thing that they like to do. So there are obviously a lot of music, um, music leaning. Uh, I know you watched one of the, the documentaries that was about a musician, and I know Demi Lovato had something come out and things like that. Um, but I, I was really happy with it. It's like a lot of quirky stuff, which I really enjoyed. And yeah, same with you. I pretty much enjoyed everything um, that I watched. Nice. Okay. Well, then let's uh, let's get into the first thing. You uh, you watched a few movies that I didn't see. So, what's the first one that you watched that you want to talk about? Uh, let's go with Islands. So, Islands is actually uh, made by a Canadian director named Martin Edrelin, Um and he he's a Filipino um, Canadian. His parents are uh, immigrants from the Philippines, and he wrote a movie. He wrote and directed this movie, and it's about a middle aged man named Joshua. Uh, who's been living at home, um, kind of life has passed him by a little bit. 
unfortunately, like this isn't spoiler. They put this in the trailer. His mother passes away, um, and it, the story is about him and his father uh, trying to, I guess, come to terms with what had happened, and then his father's health starts to decline as well. And so, a uh, a caregiver, his cousin, um, steps into the picture, and she helps out in, in their family. Um, I really like this movie. I thought it was just such a sweet film and um the all the actors were for the most part first time actors um they might have done kind of some small things in high school or uh you know like kind of little short films and things like that but for the most part everybody was um this was their big kind of first time feature um at the same time so martin edgerlin he's canadian as i said and he had released a short film maybe a couple of years ago uh that won at the canadian screen awards um for the best short of the year and I was watching some interviews with him and I thought it was really cool because he was saying that uh, one of the inspirations he drew from was actually Roma, um, the Alfonso Corian movie. And it's this idea of kind of looking back at your childhood. And he said that he was inspired by this idea. Of, it was a, It's not autobiographical, um, but it was Martin's, his parents were retiring and he was starting to think about, okay, well, I have to take care of my parents. But I also have my own life, you know, and kind of that balance and and how to go forward with that. So I really enjoyed it. It's not it, it, there is a big kind of idea that it's an immigrant story. Um, and there's a lot of different nods to kind of Filipino culture. I'm not Filipino myself, but I grew up with a lot of Filipinos and I had a lot of Filipino friends. And I got a real kick out of the house that they use for the movie because it was literally the same house that I've been in. Um, like in high school, going to my friend's house, mm-hmm. like it's the exact same house, <laughs> just like little, like little details of, um, yeah, there's a lot of Jesus statues <laughs> and pictures around the place. Uh, I, I remember actually being really scared by one once because I didn't know it was there. Um, and just the type of furniture that they have, the way that they eat, like the types of foods that they eat. And it was this idea of, you know, it's very familiar, that house. And in a lot of interviews that um, Martin has done, he's talked about that. Just this idea of, you know, we, we talk about representation a lot these days, especially in, in film. And he was just saying it's little things. It's not like shoving Filipino culture in your face. It's just this is what their house would look like of a couple who came from the Philippines um, and settled in Canada. Uh, and I, I love that. But it's, it's ultimately it's a story about, you know, a man who he's very shy and he's very introverted and he's not lazy. He's not a deadbeat. Like I think there's a bit of a negative connotation when you still live at home, when you're 40, 50 years old, it's like, uh, what happened to you? Like what's wrong with your life? Like, why are you still living here? Um, but he has a job. He works. It's just, he never got married. He never you know, had children, his own family. Um, and so I, I really loved it. I thought it was, it, it, I mean, it's not a perfect movie, but I, I just thought it was such a sweet movie. And, you know, there's also a through line of the cousin who's the caregiver, um, who, who works as a caregiver. And her, her backstory was that she was a caregiver in Kuwait before um, she came to Canada. Um, and there's this really wonderful scene um, in there of uh, her telling uh, Joshua, who's, who's the main character, um, about her experience working in Kuwait, and it's not good. Like there's, you know, abuse and sexual assault and 
a lot of those stories. And that's not a unique thing. That's not dramatized. Um, it's a real problem. Um, the way that Filipino care, not just Filipino caregivers, it just happens that a lot of them are Filipino. Um, who, that, the way that they're treated across the Middle East, across Asia. And it, it's a, it really is a real problem. And I love that Martin included that because he didn't have to. It didn't, not to say it didn't add to the movie, but it wasn't necessary for the plot. But I thought that by adding it in there, in this story, it was ingenious because it really gives a bit of voice to something that I don't think a lot of people know about outside of Asia, like outside of maybe even the Philippines. Like, yeah. I, I don't know how many people are aware of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something that uh, that really goes under the radar. You, you hear about it every once in a while, uh, especially like I remember hearing stories <laughs> about that with like the, the world cup stadium being built in, in uh cater where they would be talking about importing house workers, like domestic workers and things like that from, from different uh, Asian countries and stuff like that to, yeah. to work in there and the different trafficking that was happening. So it is a very real problem that unfortunately gets very overlooked in the media, unfortunately. Uh, do you think this is the type of movie, because it's a Canadian film, I, I hope that it maybe starts playing this. I believe this was the world premiere. Um, mm-hmm. I, I hope that it like starts making the rounds in the Canadian festivals, you know, something like Cinefest Subbury, something. I don't know if if by TIFF, because they really like having their, their world premieres there. Uh, yeah. In the different smaller festivals in Canada, and hopefully it can kind of grow and build an audience. Do you think that there is an audience for this movie? Absolutely. I think so. and. Um you know, I, I, that same interview that I was watching with the director, he was saying that he was looking to, you know, just do the, do the film circuit this year, uh, especially because it's all digital. So it's, you know, and it's not easier, but, you know, for him, it's, it's slightly more manageable, I suppose, because you can just go to as many as you can from your yeah. living room. Um, but I, I think there is, like, I, we taught, like, I, I mentioned a little bit about representation and I think, a lot of times we're kind of thrown under this banner of, of Asian representation and that's obviously been in the news a lot lately, but um, I think it's important to understand like, yeah, Asia is a, a massive continent and with within that, there's a lot of different cultures and um, religions, countries, languages that are being spoken within kind of one umbrella that we all kind of get put under. And Filipino culture definitely hasn't been in the spotlight as much and for whatever reason i mean maybe it's it's just there's not as many of them there's not i don't know i'm not even going to try to guess why but uh i think that there definitely is a there definitely is a um like an audience for and i'm not just not just to say this is for filipino people either but i just know they're a very proud culture and the second that something is filipino they're all over like when manny pacquiao was fighting yeah. it was a really big deal <laughs> and um, so I know that and like all my Philippine friends, I told them all about this. It's like, guys, there's this movie out. You guys should go watch it whenever it comes out. Um, but it's, it's not just for Filipinos. I think that there's a, a great story in there about, I, I love the story of Joshua just because he is this shy person, this very introverted person. Um, and I think that's a lot of people who can see themselves in him where it's, it's not that you're a loser. It's not that you're, you know, lazy, a deadbeat. It's just, you're just not that kind of person. And I think that he actually even says that in, in the, like one of the scenes, he says, I'm not that guy. Like I'm not the person that goes out and hits on girls and, you know, goes dates a lot and stuff like that's not me. And I think that that's, that's the kind of person that we don't often see in film. 
Um, and I think a lot of people can, can and hopefully will relate to it. And I, I really hope that they do get some distribution. I can't imagine that they're going to be like a wide release, you know, in, in theaters everywhere, but, um, hopefully they go to more festivals and then maybe get a smaller release, maybe somewhere in Canada. It'd be great though. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the second film, one that we both saw. And that was a film called Alien on Stage, which was directed uh, by Lucy Harvey and Danielle Kummer. We're just normal people, aren't we? Normal people don't do things like no. this. No. How the hell has this made it to the West End for one night only? I had absolutely no understanding as to why we're going to the West End or how it even happened. I can just about see. Oh my god, how are they going to do that? Oh my god! Now this is a really interesting one. Uh, This is a a movie about how this small town in England called Dorset, where every year they put on uh, a play for their community to raise money for charity... And usually they do stuff like pantomimes, which is, you know, a very interactive uh, theater show, usually meant for children where, you know, they ask the kids to yell things at the stage and, you know, boo the bad guys and cheer on the heroes, that sort of thing. Uh, But they decided to do something a little bit differently. And one of the members of the group uh, decided to write a adaptation of the classic horror movie Alien for this small group to put on. Now the catch is they're all bus drivers or work for this bus company. And so, you know, it's got this great, great thing where they're not professionals. It's community theater. They're doing the best that they can. They're working on almost no budget at all, only to whatever money they make to reinvest it into whatever their charities. They they weren't very clear on what that, that charity is. Um, But still, you watch it and it starts out you're like oh i don't i don't know if i'm really going to be on this wavelength it's you know non-professional actors they're kind of a little bit awkward they're you know not taking it very seriously and then as it goes and goes and goes you just kind of get more invested in this little troop that can until sort of you get this reveal about halfway through that uh on one of their performances where only like 20 people were in the crowd, some alien super fans from London came and watched it and thought this was the greatest thing ever, decided to contact some West End theaters in London to see if they would host them for a night. And of course they do. And so it's about how this like little tiny acting group goes to the big city and becomes this gigantic cult smash hit where they've gone since gone on to perform it, I think, every year since then. And it just like kind of blows you away. This this movie doesn't do anything really fancy with the way the story is told. There's no real tricks to the documentary, nothing like that. It's a pretty straightforward, uh, you know, people talking to the camera and then fly on the wall sort of approach. But you just really fall in love with who these people are and the fact that them trying so hard is what makes it so enjoyable. Uh, have you seen the original Alien? I'm sort of curious about what your reaction to this movie was. Uh, I have seen Alien. I haven't seen it in a really long time. I watched it. I don't know. Like I was a kid when I first saw Alien. I think probably a bit too young to watch it, but I did like it. Um, I I know that there are some massive, massive Alien fans out there, and I like the movie. I don't think I'm. I would consider myself one of those like diehard Alien people. Um, but I love this documentary too. I like for everything that you said about it. I think that it. 
you know, I said this on, on, on my review of it. If this is the kind of movie that are a film that I want to see when I go to a film festival because it's really offbeat, quirky. It's about the most random thing in the world. Like it's not anything that's, you know, a lot of times when you watch documentaries or, or films, it's, it's like very, it's always like very heartwarming and very moving and it's an emotional thing. And, but this was just the most random thing. It's just a group of bus drivers in Dorset who love acting. You know, they're, they're community actors. Um, they do this as like a side gig and they just happen to get an opportunity of a lifetime to go and perform in the West end of London, Leicester square theater, no less. Like it's, it's amazing. And the fact too, that, you know, this documentary got started um, from, they, they raised funds through a Kickstarter, you know, they raised 10,000 pounds to make this movie or to make this documentary. And I, I just think I love, I love the story that's being told within the documentary, but I love the idea of how the documentary even came to be. Like it was just two fans of alien who happened to see this play and they just went with it. And I, I absolutely love it. Like it's just, it's so endearing and, um, it just puts a really big smile on your face, I think. It sort of falls into this category of fan adaptations that are a little mm-hmm. bit different than the original. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of, of two movies in particular, Son of Rambo and Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, the, rem- the adaptation, where it's mm-hmm. people that are just really in love with the source material and they're doing it as homage. You know, it's clearly low budget, low quality, but their passion brings yeah. it through in, in elements that are normally, you know, um, either scary or super serious, it's usually played up a little bit for laughs. And then I also think of maybe uh, other things as far as stage adaptation, stuff like the Evil Dead musical or even, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I know predates the original movie, but this sort of idea where uh, elements of genre are played up more. And that's where, you know, you see the real love and appreciation and, and the comedy really comes from. And what I, I appreciate about this is, you know, throughout this whole movie, they're they're showing you how they make like the face hugger and the chest burster and the alien yeah. costume. And you're like, oh, wow, I wonder what it actually looks like. And of course, at the end, they basically show the entire play, but basically the greatest hits of the play. So, you know, mm-hmm. you get the the finding the egg scene when the egg opens up and the, the face hugger <laughs> jumps out and you get the chest burster scene. And of course, yeah. like you I remember when I watch it you, for the first time, you're scared, you know, the little worm thing breaks through the chest and blood squirts everywhere and everyone's screaming. You don't know what's actually happening and you're on the edge of your seat. That's scary. Except for in this, everyone in the audience knows it's coming. And as soon as it comes, it's like this moment of elation. Like, yeah, they did it. I can't believe they actually did it. And it works so well. I, yeah, I, I, you're right. This idea is like fan passion, you know, I'm, it's, it's amazing. And I actually thought it was really interesting. I had, um, was reading an interview. I was, I think on Twin Deep and, the two directors were saying that when they first went to go watch it, it wasn't played for comedy. Like they didn't actually think of it in a comedic way. They took it really seriously. And you can tell that from the crew, like when they're talking about creating the different special, special effects and that they're, they're so, it's very, it's very craft to them, right? Like they're, they're taking it really, really seriously. And it was only after that they could see the audience's reaction that they started to see the humor in it a little bit more. Um, because originally it was p- played really straight. Like it wasn't played for laughs or anything. And it, and I think that the thing I like about it too, is that being played for laughs, it's not like they knew that the audience wasn't laughing at them. Mm-hmm. Like you're not laughing at, Oh, like, haha, look how amateur this is. Like, no, you're looking like it. 
it's like you said, like it kind of the element of the genre. It's not scary anymore. Mm-hmm. It's it's just there's there's a real fire behind it. Like a great example I say I was thinking about was um uh Point Break, you know, like Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze. So that movie's become this crazy kind of cult nineties action movie. Um for for various reasons I'm sure. But there's um a a play of it. Not a play, I shouldn't say a play, but like they do an adaptation of it somewhere in LA. And every night somebody in the audience gets to be Johnny Utah. So you go in and you get, you get to be Johnny Utah and it's this massive thing. And I think they said Patrick Swayze at one point actually went and saw it. Um, and they were always asking like, the reason I know about it is because I would watch like an interview with Keanu Reeves and they would always ask Keanu Reeves, are you going to do it? And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to go. Like, it's, it is kind of weird, I suppose, for the actors, but I, you're right. It, it's, it's just incredible. The, the amount of passion that, people have for a movie or or for acting and for stage work like the crew like in terms of creating these special effects out of nothing you know they don't have big budget they're not they're not a movie they're not they're not you know Ridley Scott they don't have that budget behind them but they're making it as practical and to the best that they can with what's available to them and I just think it's brilliant I really enjoyed it and it it really took me back like you and I talked a little bit about this um, the other day I was like it really brought me back to when I was living in the UK and just seeing all these little random bits of theater all around London. Like it's the, the theater culture there, it's really strong and it's really heavy, not quite like how it is in, in North America, like obviously Broadway. And I know Chicago has a, a big uh, theater community, but it's a little bit different over there. And they, they, they embrace the weird and they embrace the kind of the quirky and the random. Um, and I always love that. So this, this documentary was such a, it was a nice reminder, a nice throwback to that time. Yeah. And I, I spent a, a good deal of my youth doing community theater. So <laughs> I'm, I'm well versed in how you sort of make something from nothing with people of varying degrees of commitment and interest to the project that's being done. And so almost everyone involved, I, I have a bit of an archetype of someone that I know that, that fits that role <laughs> as well, <laughs> for better or for worse. I, I, I love too that it's like, you know, they're, they're middle-aged actors as well. You know, like they all have a job. Like they, I think they're all aware, you know, they're not going to be a big Hollywood superstar. That's not what they're going for. They're literally doing this because they love it. You know, they love acting. They like putting on plays um, like the Panto at the end of the year and things like that. Um, And I, 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 that for me like endears it even more that they're doing it for fun and for passion and for love. I think that that's amazing. And I like I've seen some. It's done really well, Alien on stage. When I was um, just kind of looking it up and looking at the response, it, it's like almost unanimously like very high praise for it. And and like you said, it's not the documentary itself in terms of like a piece of filmmaking. It's nothing groundbreaking or or anything like that. But it's just the topic of it. And because Alien too, it has such like a fandom behind it. You know, how, I didn't actually ask you, how, how about you with Alien? Is that a big movie for you? Is it just one that you kind of saw and you thought, yeah, that's good? I only saw it for the first time uh, probably about five or six years ago. I like it. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I, because I um, I didn't grow up watching horror movies or anything scary, so I have a real okay. aversion to it. So I really have to be super <laughs> picky. I'm a, I'm a big chicken. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm sort of figuring out what works for me and what doesn't work for me. Alien, because, you know, uh, I like sci-fi, but there's also a little yeah. bit 
of an element of of humor and camp in it as well, even though it is a very yeah. serious movie. Uh, I can easily watch that. <laughs> and there's there's like a it's kind of a sci-fi action horror. Like I actually never thought of it as a horror movie, to be honest, Alien. I, I know that that's kind of the reputation it has. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I watched it, granted, I was very young. It's my uncle's really into um, like action movies. I always associate it more as an action movie than anything else. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so I, I haven't seen it in ages, so I and this this actually has made me be like I kind of want to watch it again, just to revisit it a little bit and and remember the good times of it. Is there any movie that if you were to do a play, like you said, you you did community theater and things like that, is there a movie that you love so much that you would be like, I want to do um, like stage a play on this, just out of sheer passion for a movie oh geez oh i don't know that you put me on the spot here i do remember (laughs) weirdly enough when i was like super young like i must have been under 10 years old i thought about like remaking the original star wars and like Uh, oh where where could i where could i film it and who in my classmate would play who who would be luke and who would be leia (laughs) and all this sort of stuff and like oh yeah there's like a a forest ravine that could be you know the outdoor scenes and and that sort of stuff so i do remember thinking about that i have no idea why but for the longest time that was always just like a little idea that i would play with in my head where like i'd be outside be like oh this would be a good spot to recreate this scene that's so funny. That it, Star Wars would be a good one. I'm actually surprised there isn't. Do they have? Do, have they ever done like Star Wars the musical? Or is uh, George Lucas not not lent that out? Or I guess Disney now. Well, George Lucas might. I don't know if. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. That's that's funny. That's really sweet, though. You should do it. Oh, Why not? <laughs> yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, I think we should move on. What was uh, what was the next movie you want to talk about? Um, the next movie I saw was called Our Father. So this is the only movie that I would say I have a bit of a mixed opinion on. I loved like the individual parts of it, but as an entire movie, it leaves you wanting a little bit, like just, I don't know if it leaves you wanting more. It just leaves you having, I think, more questions than, than kind of any answers. Um, so it was directed by and written by Bradley Grant Smith. Um, it's his first feature. And there's two really great performances in it. It's about two sisters, Zelda and Beta. Um, and they go, so I'm going to read what the, what the synopsis is that they've officially put on because I don't quite understand it. They wrote, in a last ditch attempt to foster a meaningful bond, two troubled sisters set out in search of their mysterious long lost uncle. So I have a bit of a problem with this, like the, the synopsis that they give because it makes it sound like it's two sisters who, you know, they've been fighting for a long time or maybe they're estranged and they're saying we need to get our relationship back together and let's go on this trip and find this uncle. And um, it, that's not the movie. And, you know, I, I'm not, I'm, to be honest, I'm not too sure what the movie is. It's great. It is a good movie. Like, I love the performances in it. There's uh, Babe Luzan and Allison Torum who play the the two sisters. They're phenomenal. They They do a really, really good job. And I think it would be great if this ends up being their breakthrough um, because I think both of them have done a little bit of TV work and a little bit of film work, a lot of theater work for both of them. But um, so hopefully this gets them a bit of attention. My issue with it is just, they touch on a lot of really cool themes. Like they talk about there's issues of, you know, abusive relationships, um, emotional, uh, emotional, like, emotional abuse, sorry, that's what I was trying to say, and uh, mental health issues. There's a lot of 
you know, an odd family dynamic, uh, a complex family dynamic. I shouldn't call it odd. Um, and it's really interesting. Like all the little bits are really interesting, but when you put them all together, it just feels like, you know, um, Smith, the director just kind of brushes all of them, but never actually goes into any of them. You know, the idea of why they're looking for this long lost uncle is because their father has passed away, has committed suicide. And he, he's named in the will, but they're all saying, well, you know, we don't know where he is. He disappeared 30 years ago. So these two sisters say, we're going to go find him for some reason. I don't know why they're going to find him. And you never really get an idea of why the two sisters are estranged, why their relationship isn't, you know, all cuddly and sisterly. But they actually do, when you put them together, they they do have a bond still. So it doesn't feel like they're like rekindling something. It just feels like two sisters who don't hang out all the time. I don't know. Do you, do you, does, like, does that make sense? Like, it's just, it's individual bits, but as a whole, it just, it just leads you wanting to them, like, to go a little bit further. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. And yeah, that makes it a little bit tough to be able to, like, really sell this movie on. You really need to check this out. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's directional issues or, or editing or something like that. But, like, as far as, like, individual components, you think it's strong? I get like again like the two performances they're amazing. I think that the the Daisy Guzan and Alison Twan they're fantastic in this. Um, and there's bits that are really interesting. You know this idea of the when the father passes away, well, you find out that the two girls, the two daughters, are the product of an affair that the father had with um, their mother. And so when they go to the house to to kind of settle the will, they're not in the will. You know, because they've always, but the, his, their father's like, first wife or only wife, actually, I don't think they ever married and they don't really discuss that. And then her son. So their half brothers are there. And so that, that, that's interesting, right? Like that's a pretty interesting, okay. So you guys are kind of like the black sheep of the family and, you know, but it's not really, it's touched on once and then that's it. And one other bit that I, the movie opens with, Beta, one of the daughters, in sleeping in her car, and so but she goes to her job, and she's got like a corporate job, and um, it, it it looks like you know not that it pays extraordinary, but like she looks like she should have a home, you know, she doesn't look like a homeless person that we typically think of, and I thought, oh, maybe this is a story about because I I didn't know what it was about beforehand, I just kind of clicked on it, um, but it, I thought maybe this is a story about homelessness like a different type of homelessness that we don't see and it ends up not being about that at all, you know? And so it's, I mean, that maybe that's my fault. That's just like setting up expectations that I, or me creating expectations within the movie. Um, but it's just like, there's just a lot of interesting stuff in there, but it never really gets resolved. Mm. Yeah. That's something that's interesting about festivals is because we don't have, you know, a narrative that's been formed about what a movie is about or, you know, mm -hmm. trailers or reviews that we can reference. We can really only go off of what does, what's the title? What does the poster maybe look like if that's available? What's the, you know, one line synopsis. And then you kind of have to just make a, a judgment call from there to see what it's like. Sometimes there'll be like genre tags as well. And even that can be a little bit deceptive 
of what you're about to sit there and watch. So sometimes you, you can go in completely blind and just be blown away. Like something like alien on stage, you know, you read the tagline of, you know, bus drivers putting on alien. You go, oh, that sounds interesting. Whereas this, the way you're sort of describing it, you, it was, you know, about trying to find a missing uncle and stuff about a will. And so you sort of expect one thing and then it turns out to be completely different. It's a bit of a tricky situation where our, sometimes we need a little bit of expectation to go in on. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's interesting because usually you almost don't want expectation, you know, but when they put the one line synopsis that they did and you just, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Okay. And you come away from the movie and being like, they didn't, that, that's not correct. <laughs> like that, that description just wasn't right. And it's on the director's website too. So I'm like, so he seemed okay with that because he has it on his own website. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I liked it. It's, it's, I, I know it sounds like I'm being really negative about it. I like the movie because I like the performances in it and I like the different themes that they try to touch on. It's just overall, I don't know. I, and I'm, I, I thought maybe I was being a little bit harsh, but I did look at some other reviews and things and most people kind of had the same thought. They just thought it's a good movie, but it's just not there. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of have one step, you just need another step forward. No, um, yeah. And it's, you're right. It is tough to recommend based on that because I don't know who the audience is for that other than, um, I don't know, people who like indie movies, maybe <laughs> who just watch every indie movie that you possibly can watch. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned the poster because the poster I was looking at doesn't say anything about the movie. Like it's their two faces broken. <laughs> and I was like, okay, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It's, it's a tough sell, but it's, I, I like it. And I think that the d- director it would be a director to watch. Like, I actually think that it would be, I, I, I'm curious to see what he does next. Um, I'm very curious to see what the two actresses get to do next. Cause I think they're, they're wonderful in it. Um, but just as a movie on its own, it's a bit lukewarm and you just kind of wish there was more, which is, I guess a good thing. Like you'd rather wish there was more than be like, that was, I didn't need to see any of that. <laughs> like that was, that was a waste of my time. Like I didn't find it a waste of my time. I just thought, there could be more. It could be greater. Like that's the thing. I think maybe that's what it is. That's fair. All right. The the next movie that we want to talk about is one that I saw, and it's called Disintegration Loops, which was directed by David Wexler. Disintegration Loops in 2001, 2002 was just basically like what all the artists were listening to. This is music. It's influencing new music being made. I didn't know what it was or anything. I was just getting something out of the airways, trying to make something from nothing, you know? Music that arrives in certain moments has, gathers a weight from that moment. It's not easy as an artist to connect your work to tragedy because, you know, you run the risk of saying, I'm turning something tragic into an aesthetic experience. I don't know if anyone is familiar with the ambient uh, musician William Bazinski, but uh, he's someone I, you know, I, I love indie music and I occasionally dive into ambient music, especially it's great where, you know, I talk about in my past, I would do a community theater listening to ambient music or, um, some, some like vocalist jazz to be able to help, uh, enhance my focus when I'm learning my lines and stuff like that. Or if I have to do work that way, I can kind of, uh, just sort of slip into it. So I, I do enjoy ambient music to listen to, to relax and, and for things like focusing. And so I was familiar with William Bazinski. And this is a documentary about his uh, his seminal album, also called Disintegration Loops, which I didn't actually know a ton about it. Um, but it was made as a bit of an elegy for 
William Bezinski was living in New York at the time, and he's. I wouldn't call him strictly a musician. He's an artist per se. So whatever, you know, shape his music takes, it's not necessarily to, you know, to, you know, make whatever is going to be the next hot club track or something like that. It's because it's, there's a purpose behind it. There's a real art intention behind it. And so what he does is with his music, he collects music or sounds that he hears. And the basis for disintegration loops was in his studio, he was able to pick up what he believed to be Muzak coming from uh, a nearby building's elevator system. But when he was receiving the feed, it was getting sort of broken up and a little bit choppy and stuff like that. So he would record it on an old uh, reel-to-reel tape recorder. And then from there, he just loops it back and forth, back and forth. And then he wasn't sure what to do with it. So he was just sitting to the side and noticing that the metallic flakes that hold the information on it were sort of falling off the actual tape itself. So it was disintegrating. And then when he would play it back, he found it very interesting. And as he's kind of like unlocking this potential for it, that's when 9-11 happened. And he already found that his music had a bit of a, I don't want to quite say melancholy nature to it, but there is definitely something about how you're losing pieces of the information. Is it still whole playing with that sort of concept? And he's sitting on his rooftop watching the towers go down in shock and realizing that the music that he's creating is basically how he feels while he's watching this, the sort of sadness, incompleteness, the removal of something that's a part of a larger picture, all this sort of thing. And so it sort of, you know, uh, goes back and forth between him talking about the creation of it with how things are going for him today. So it's all filmed over Zoom interviews, which obviously there's limitations to that. And we see the quality of the actual filmmaking go down because Zoom conference calls can only be so good. Uh, as we all probably have learned from having to do a million Zoom calls, either through work or through family or through friends, things like that. But it's just this really beautiful meditation on his music. And slowly after the release of that came out, it slowly started to build up and grow a bit of a cult following. And then about 10 years after it came out, uh, he decided to do this massive physical release of it. It was never released physically. And so he, he I think he made like seven or eight different versions of his loops. And so it was this like giant nine LP set with this big, huge, thick book of photographs, especially photographs of 9-11 and packaged together in this giant box set where I think it weighed something like over 20 pounds. Wow. Yeah. And it was, it was costing a lot and they ordered like 2000 of them to be made <laughs> and him and his manager were like, well, this either sells out or we're both completely ruined. Yeah. And, um, and so like different publications, especially Pitchfork found out about this and, and the, the former editor in chief was a huge fan of it. And he's just like, I need to have this. And he gave it a perfect 10 release, which is something Pitchfork does very rarely. And because of that, they went from having something like 600 pre-orders to like over a thousand pre-orders, like double, like a thousand more pre-orders the very next day after the review came out. And it just kind of went from there. And of course now Bazinski has been able to have a bit more of a career. And he talked about how right before COVID he had this gigantic tour plan, the biggest one he's ever done, the biggest venues he's ever done, sold the most tickets he's ever had. And then all that's been taken away and how he's kind of been struggling since, because as an artist, he can't do anything else really to make money. He, because you can make a little bit off of selling your albums and merch and stuff like that. But for any artist, their bread and butter is live touring and he can't do any of that. Wow. 
I looked at, I did, so I'm, I wasn't familiar um, with this artist or, or even that type of music. Um, so the, it, the documentary is about kind of the journey of, of that specific record and then, and then going into uh, COVID and obviously him having a bit of a, an obstacle there. Why, what was the, I don't know if you know this, but what was the reason that they made the document? Like, was he the one who said, I'd like to do something or did somebody approach him and say, Hey, this is a really interesting story. Uh, I'm not totally sure. I know it's approaching the 20th anniversary of it. And in recent okay. years, he's been kind of doing a little bit more work with it from the re-release. And he did a few one-off live shows trying to recreate it. And those recreations have been now released physically as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, it was just some sort of a seminal album about an artist who isn't really covered a lot, is not a mainstream artist at all. And at the time he was, uh, prepping a new album, which has now since come out. So I think it was just sort of a a bit of a tie in where it's like, Hey, you have something new coming out. Let's, uh, let's look at back at your career. Interesting. How did you find the zoom aspect to it? Like the, the whole thing being shot. Um, or like the interviews and, and that part of it. How, how did you find that as a, like a, as a piece of documentary filmmaking? You know, it, I think it worked enough because Bezinski himself was such a fascinating subject. He had a whole lot of energy mm. most of the time. There were times where he would like start the interview and he's like, hey, I'm kind of having a bit of a rough day. And so he was a little bit more emotional when he would talk about some of the things in his past. And so that was... that he was at least, he at least brought enough to the table to make it interesting. But then of course they'd be interviewing uh, journalists and other artists who felt that either he was inspired by them or inspired him sort of thing. Uh, his dad is interviewed for a little bit too, but like, it's all very much like, you know, when you're, you're on a zoom call and you have it set up that whoever's the person talking, that's what the camera view will switch to. Yeah. Well, they do that a couple times where it's just like very jarring. We're like, uh, you know, the interviewer will ask a question, then William will start talking. And then all of a sudden, like the, the review that the interviewer would sort of like interject with just something like, Oh yeah. And then suddenly the mm-hmm. camera would shift just to him for like about yeah. 10 or 15 seconds without, or even back. like cough. Like yeah. they just make a noise. It's not even like they're, they're adding to the conversation. <laughs> yeah. 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 That sort of thing. We're like, it's, it's so tough. Like I would have loved for, yeah this to have been filmed in person with like a nice backdrop, even as house still or at a studio, whatever it was, it just kind of would have been nice. Unfortunately, a lot of it plays back into the pandemic. You know, there's some gorgeous Mm -hmm. shots of New York nearly empty because this was basically shot at the beginning of the pandemic, right when the first shutdown happened. So like you, you're seeing like times square, almost completely empty. You're seeing uh, different famous landmarks, no one around it, all that sort of stuff. And so it's just very interesting. And I think it actually parallels very nicely this idea of, you know, this great tragedy of nine 11 and how 3000 people lost their lives. And then, you know, the pandemic, which the U S for a while was averaging right. about 3000 deaths per day. And so like in my review, yeah. I kind of compared the two and this idea of how after nine 11, it was, we must never forget. And now you have the same politicians that were, you know, being like, never forget now being like, eh, it's kind of a hoax. COVID is a hoax, <laughs> that sort of thing. And so I kind of, I kind of compared those two in my review. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I definitely saw a parallel. I think it's great. Uh, 
especially like like you said, you know, musicians they need to go on tour. That's where they're going to get um, most, if not all, of their their income from. And I think even though he had obviously a massive roadblock and wasn't able to go on tour, I mean, hopefully he can go whenever all this is said and done. Um, I think it's great though that they got this documentary done, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, to actually get something done and. I mean, maybe even raise his profile so that when he does go back out on tour, maybe this helps him gain a few new fans, like people who didn't know about him. Mm-hmm. Um, now they're they're a bit more interested. Yeah. Um, the Zoom aspect, the Zoom aspect is interesting though because uh, there's, you know, it, it's it's a different way of, what can we call it filmmaking? I guess it is filmmaking. Like, yeah, it's it's a different way of, of a different medium now, I suppose. And so it's interesting that an entire documentary was done in that format, like obviously cutting in shots and, and, and things like that. But um, the fact that all of the interviews and all that's done, it, it, like comparing it to say alien on stage, which is a much more traditional, you know, we, you actually follow them. And like you said, fly on the wall kind of thing. Um, so that, that's actually really interesting to compare the two um, as just documentaries. The next one I want to talk about is called Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, a history of folk horror. This was a massive film <laughs> That was almost three and a half hours. I think it was like three hours and 15 minutes or something like that. It was directed by Kirla Janesse. I, I hope I, I said that uh, correctly. Uh, I would almost say this is a uh, course syllabus of a film and not yeah. like an entertainment documentary. And I think because they take this approach to be so academic, it actually works so much more in their favor. And I was just utterly engrossed with it. hundred um, percent. I, it's actually interesting now when I'm looking at, we're talking about, you know, three different documentaries here, you know, you've got the very, very traditional alien on stage, um, the disintegration loops, which is more to current today. And then you have Woodland Dark, which is, you're right. It's not really a documentary. It's, it's just it's a teachable educational thing um, where they weave in a ton of interviews with different scholars of folk horror and um, kind of the associated parts of it and, and filmmakers as well. Like they had like Robert Eggers on. Um, I really love this. I thought it was it, three hours is a long time to sit and watch something. Um, but the only reason I even wanted, well, there were two reasons I wanted to watch it. One was the movie poster. Um, which is gorgeous. It's one of the nicest movie posters I've ever seen. Um, and then also too, I had just watched Midsommar not too long ago, like maybe a week ago. And I got really, really down this weird rabbit hole of folk horror and also Swedish movies, oddly enough. And so when I saw this, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And I didn't realize that folk horror had such a history to it. Like it makes sense, obviously, but to me it was just, it was just another genre of film. Like I, I didn't really think about that. There were going to be so many intricacies that folk horror wasn't really a thing. Like people just lumped it into horror movies, like just scary movies, but it's actually something a little bit different to horror. I don't know how, how you said yourself, like you don't watch too many scary movies. <laughs> very um, I didn't either though. Like I, I wasn't a huge horror movie person, um, but I learned a ton from this, but how, how were you in terms of, like folk horror like what what was your knowledge on that before you watched this not not a ton i've i've seen the mm-hmm. witch i've seen midsummer i've uh i'm trying to think if i ended up seeing anything else in this movie i don't know if i have 
Uh, but like, I'm, I'm definitely intimately aware with, with a lot of the, the more touchstone ones, you know, one of the original ones is the wicker man. I'm, I'm very familiar mm-hmm. with, with that one in the remake that it was and, and stuff like that. And they obviously touch on all the, the big milestone films, but what I think works really interesting, this documentary is more like an anthropology exercise yeah. than any sort of entertainment. Obviously, this movie starts out with with England. They they call it the Unholy Trinity. There's three movies that really sort of started out. One of them being The Wicker Man is the most well-known of the three. And sort of talk Mm -hmm. about how these three movies were made completely on their own, but somehow each were sort of touching on similar themes and styles. And because of that can kind of be grouped together as folklore. And then from there, how that sort of became a bit of a genre in England and then uh, it sort of spread to the U.S. where they were sort of dealing with very similar issues, specifically uh, the New England horror, uh, Salem witch trial, that sort of stuff. And then it was kind of looking at from where did that influence go to the rest of the world. But then as they're realizing that they're kind of crossing each of these borders, that it's it's presented to us that, oh, this is a straight line. This is this is pagan English culture this is uh salem witch trials this is uh world cinema being inspired by these two except for that we realize it's not a straight line much like you would expect in something like a folk horror it is a very scraggly tree that branches out in every different direction and every single culture whether or not they knew it or not were having their own versions of folk horror itself and as soon as you start to try to describe what folk horror is, the further you get in the different branches you get, it becomes a little bit more esoteric from there uh, and harder to really pin down how does movie XYZ relate to movie ABC. And that becomes a little bit tricky, but there's still some sort of a connective tissue nonetheless, even if the way we originally thought that folk horror started may no longer be there. And I, I love one aspect of it I really, really loved was um, the parallels that they drew from events, like what whatever was going on in the world in that specific region at the time mm-hmm. that fed into the folklore of that region, you know? So they talk a lot about different movies with um, where the influence came from, you know, Nazism and, and World War II and then the Cold War being another big one as well. Um, the part of the documentary I thought was fascinating was, you know, the world cinema um, uh, aspect that you were talking about, that around the world, you know, there's just so many different mythologies and fairy tales, right? Like every every culture has them. Um, and taking this rather, I don't want to say evil, but like a kind of demonic kind of horror look at it. Because um, a lot of old fairy tales are actually very creepy and very scary, but it's just the way that you position it i suppose right like cinderella i know i think that that's actually a really disturbing no not cinderella sorry hansel and gretel mm-hmm. like that's a really disturbing tale but when we grew up hearing it it's actually like it's a, like a cute little kid's tale so it's just about the way that you tell it and i i thought it was just so interesting when you look at around the world how you know south america you know the in, in spanish culture how do they how do they present these the same story and i there was one um well, I wish I could remember the name of it now, but there was one, uh, a couple movies that they said, it's basically the same story that's being told, but once it was being told in Brazil and then the other, it was being told in Spain mm-hmm. and it's the same thing. It's just two different perspectives on it. And, uh, I, I love, you know, that they touched on some ones in, uh, Asia as well, Southeast Asia, like Thailand and Laos and things like that, because 
they have a quite a rich history too of what I think typically would be described as a ghost story, but it's not really a ghost story. It's, it's something a little bit deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love that they talked about that too. That was actually probably my only criticism was like, I wish that they had gone a little bit more into the international side of it. Understanding that, of course, you know, the British, they were the ones who kind of started it and then moved into New England um, in, in the States. But it would have been interesting to see as it developed in that, like in those two areas of the world, how it was also relating to the rest of the world. Um, because there's some really old, old movies from, you know, all over. Like in Australia, had some really interesting ones too. And I really liked how they touched on the indigenous um kind of mythology and like almost appropriation, especially in the States of using that, like they spent a good chunk of time um, on that, on that one area. And I thought that that was really, really fascinating. I really enjoyed it. I thought this, this documentary was like probably one of the greatest things I've seen in a long time. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I feel like the, you know, the original basis for what was coined as folk horror started out with in England, this idea of, you know, pagan rituals and mm-hmm. sort of rejecting of Christianity. And that was sort of what was grown from there. And then when you're looking at the American movies, it's not so much the rejection of, of Christianity. It's more the sort of Puritan religions who were imposing their will on other people. And that sort of changes what the tone is. And then from there, when you're going into the different world stuff, a lot of it has to do with colonialism and the lack yeah. of respect for the uh, the indigenous cultures or the people who were there first. So it almost starts out a little bit at the beginning uh, after you get through the like, you know, pagan cult sort of stuff. Uh, this idea of women being in charge is what is the fear, especially when you get to the American ones and, you know, this idea of the Salem witch trials of, of women being powerful there. They were the doctors of the villages and stuff like that. And that scared people uh, because they were, had healing powers. And so that's why they would burn the women and stuff like that. And then it sort of then flips itself on to a little bit more of being a, a, a view on how colonization was affecting the different countries that they were invading in, disrespecting the land and you know they talk about it you you quoted it in your article but there's a great quote in the movie where they're talking to jesse went to who does a lot of work here in canada uh with indigenous film and he's like talking about the trope of the uh in, the indian burial ground uh, yeah. how you don't want to build on the indian burial ground because then you'll be haunted <laughs> and he jokes he says well wait till you find out that everything is an indian burial ground because it's true with the amount of you know uh, death and destruction that that colonizers did to indigenous communities everywhere in North America specifically is an Indian burial ground. If you want to get technical. I, yeah, I thought it was such a great line. For, I mean, I mean, I know he didn't mean it as like a line, but it was just such a great quote from him. But, um, and he, he brought up too this idea of, you know, one of the reasons that they use, you know, the colonial pastor, they reference it with, with indigenous cultures because, they themselves are afraid of this, like it's a subconscious fear. Like he explores that idea that it's in a subconscious fear that you're afraid that you're going to, somebody's going to take your house. Somebody's mm-hmm. going to take your land from you, which is, I mean, not what they did, but what their ancestors, that's exactly what they did. That's exactly why you even have that land is because it was taken from somebody else. And I thought that was, it was just really it was just something I wasn't expecting that either. I wasn't expecting a discussion about about indigenous 
um, tropes or culture being used in in Hollywood films, and that might simply come from the fact that I didn't, I don't watch too many folklore. I will now. I like made a list of a bunch of like that's one reason I think that people can watch this is just you can get a lot of really great film recommendations yeah. um, from this documentary. They recommend like they, not recommend sorry they referred to I think it was they said over two hundred different titles. So there's a ton from like all over the world that you can look into. But um, yeah, I, I thought that that, you know, what Jesse went, his whole discussion was, was really, really interesting. Especially, I think, in, in the guise of what we are talking about these days, about, you know, where people are a bit more in tune of this idea of appropriation and um, representation, even and the fact that they're not the ones that are being able to tell folklore from their perspective, from like indigenous perspective. This is coming from you know, white filmmakers who are reading their folklore and being like, we're going to use it. So maybe hopefully down the line, we can get more from indigenous filmmakers and we can get their perspective on what the folklore actually is to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I do want to know, I think the last thing is uh, David Ehrlich, a critic from IndieWire on his review says, uh, you get the sense that Janess wouldn't be too upset if you kept pausing her documentary in order to log titles into the letterbox list you have opened in another tab, which is absolutely true. I definitely paused it a couple times to add movies to my list. And I saw in your review, you, were, you made a list of ones yeah. you had to watch. This is, I'm not going to recommend this movie to everyone. If you're just looking for a history of horror yeah. movies, this is not going to be for you. If you really want to learn some really fascinating stuff, that's, I would say probably if there's, if there's a hundred movies mentioned in here, I probably didn't know 90 of them. If that, this is really going to be, if you want to learn your stuff and, and have a deeper dive into historical context of a lot of things that were going on around the world. And even then I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the movies that they mentioned, you can't even easily access. So I was looking for, um, one of the ones that is part of the unholy Trinity. And now that it's the, um, the claw one. Oh yeah. Satan's claw. <laughs> I was like, what's the claw one? I was looking at that. I couldn't find it anywhere. And then like, it's not on any streaming platforms or anything like that. And, um, but then I found it on YouTube, like somebody posted it up on YouTube in great quality as well, mind you. So I think that that's awesome. But you're right. Like there's going to be a ton of movies there that I don't know if you're going to be able to find them. And, but like, you know, hopefully, hopefully now that you're aware of it, maybe, maybe there is somebody out there. Cause I think folklore is such a, it's such a niche genre of film and the people who love it really, really love it. I think that goes for all horror fans, actually. Yeah. I've always noticed that about people who love horror films they love it. Like they love it more than like, okay, I like comedy, but I don't like comedy in the way that horror film fan loves horror. Like it's very different. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, maybe there's one of them out there who posts who uploads kindly to, to YouTube, obviously not infringing on anyone's copyright, but it would be great if, if more of them could go up there. Cause I, there's some really interesting ones, like especially some around the world, like ones that I don't think would have come around to us. Um, if it wasn't for this documentary, cause Absolutely. And also, I want to say, like, the Kira Lajini, she's Canadian as well. She's from Vancouver. Yeah. Um, which I thought was really cool. I didn't realize that until I was looking it up. I was like, oh, she's Canadian. So, uh, South by Southwest actually, I think, had some healthy Canadian representation this year. Honestly, I feel this could be an entire semester of an elective for like uh, a film studies program 100%, where you watch yeah. about a half an hour. So it's divided up into chapters. If you watch a chapter and then like the homework is you have to watch two or three of the movies that are, are talked about on that chapter and have a discussion about it. I definitely could see this very easily being an entire syllabus. Absolutely. hundred percent agree with that. Like it's, 
I think what you said straight off the bat, it's not a documentary. Like it's not what you think a documentary is. It's literally like a teaching tool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's an educational, like a piece of education that, um, you know, it's, you're right. You can't recommend it to everybody. It's cause it's really long, like it's three hours, but it's, it's for people who I think who are interested in this stuff. I think they'll really, really appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's talk about the last movie. What was the last one you saw? So this is called Potato Dreams of America. And I have to say, this is probably my favorite thing that I watched um, at South by Southwest. Like I really, really, really love this movie. Uh, it's, they kind of describe it as a coming of age movie um, about a young boy who's struggling with the idea of maybe he might be gay, but growing up in what was then the USSR, obviously incredibly conservative. He's, frightened of these emotions and feelings that he's he's discovering in himself um and it's the story of him and his mother uh so him is is potato it's his nickname not his actual name it's the nickname his mother has given him and he's called that throughout the whole movie more or less um and his mother lena and then it talks about them moving to the states uh, as immigrant immigration into the states where Lena is a mail-order bride to an American who lives out in Washington State. Um, so it's an autobiographical movie. Uh, Wes Hurley is the director and the writer. This is his story, basically. It's his story that he's telling. Um, he wrote a really great article in the Huffington Post uh, in 2013, which I posted, I have it on my Twitter, but you can, if you just search Wes Hurley, Huffington Post, it's, that's the story that he's telling. And it's incredibly touching because not only is he growing up in this air, like this quite bleak country that is crumbling. Like he was around the time that, or when, as he was growing up, that was around the time that the USSR was, was falling. Um, so things aren't great. You know, his life wasn't great and it, it was tough for him and his family and his father wasn't around. Um, and the story is just, it's in, it's told in two parts, the movie. You've got the first part, which is set in USSR. The second part is set in America. The first part is very fantastical, almost. It looks like a sitcom. Like it looks like an American sitcom. And it's a bit jarring at first. When I started the movie, um, the potato and Lena, the mother, the two actors are speaking in a very pure Canadian, um, American accent. Like very, and not just an American accent, but like the ones that you hear on sitcoms. And you're just kind of like, I thought this was a movie set in USSR, but everybody's speaking and just like they're just American. And it threw me a little bit at first because um, I thought, oh, they're just doing that thing where they don't want people to read subtitles and all. We've talked about subtitles before, and I thought oh, they're just doing that. But then as you keep going, you realize it's a it's a part of it. You know, they're it's a part of the style that um, Wes Hurley chose for the first half of the movie, which is it's it's an American sitcom. It's being told his childhood is being told through the lens of an American sitcom and the colors and the way that it's filmed it's very much so in keeping with that tone and then the second half when they immigrate to the state it's much more grounded is is the word I would use but I don't know if it's the best word to use but it's like they it's much more real I suppose it's much more gritty and they you know they're shooting on location now in when they come to America whereas in the first half it's all done on the soundstage and it's very obviously done on the soundstage. Like it's not meant to look like it's real. It's just meant to look like a sitcom. And I, I found the story to be incredibly moving. Um, 
you know, his mother, Lena, she is an incredible woman. Like it, I, I'm sure that they maybe took some liberties here and there it, during in the movie, but the general thesis of the kind of woman that she is, like, I think the world would be a better place if we could all be more like Lena. Cause she's just so open and loving and not judgmental at all. Uh, you know, there's a really great scene where Potato comes out to his mom and says, Mom, I, I think I'm gay. And his mom just starts laughing. He goes, oh, like, is that why you've been so, you know, sad and distant? Like, she goes, it's okay. Everybody's a little bit gay. I was like, that sounds funny. I just thought it was funny. And especially because she's supposed to be this woman from USSR, you know, Russian Orthodox. Um, you would imagine her to be very you know, terrified to find out that her that her son is gay. Like, you know, but she was just so, it's like, who cares? Like, that's who you are. And I'm so glad that you're able to, to share that. And it's just such, and then there's, there's a line of the, um, um, the stepfather as well. And I don't want to give anything away, but, you know, his stepfather is in the movie and he has some skeletons of his own. You know, when he, when he decides to marry Lena, one of the reasons that he wanted to marry her was because she was such a, he thought she would be such a strict Russian Orthodox woman, um, very conservative. And he spouts a lot of, you know, conservative kind of bylines, you know, homosexuality shouldn't be allowed. Like, why don't they say prayer in school anymore? Things like that. Um, and then as his story comes out as well, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. But it's such a great movie. I really hope, and I think it will like get some nice distribution and some good, um, into some, I don't know about theaters, but into just a, a wider release so that more people can see it. Uh, it was, and all the performances are great. The dialogue's great. The way that he shot it, it's pretty stylistic. Um, I'm half and half on stylistic, over highly stylized movies. I think sometimes it can work. Sometimes it's a bit distracting from the film, but I think in this case, it really, really worked. Like it elevated the, themes that he was trying that Wes Hurley was trying to put out there and I, I can't say enough good things about this movie oh, well I regret not being able to catch that <laughs> it's incredible like I and one thing too that I saw was um, somebody who tweeted about it mentioned that Wes Hurley had used a lot of references to a lot of other directors and um, 80s 90s queer films and I just thought I didn't pick up on that at all because that's not a genre that unfortunately I just never got into. And I thought, oh, like there's a world of cinema out there that I haven't explored and I don't know anything about. Um, but I, I, cause I had no idea. I had no idea that there were any homages, references, um, anything like that in the movie, but it's, it's such a good one. I, I've seen a few reviews out there that are a little bit mixed on it. Like some people are just saying like, it's, it's a little too stylized. It's a little too this, a little too that. I think it's it's just a really heartwarming movie. It's it's it camp. It's funny um, in places that it kind of you don't expect it to be camp and funny. Um, and I think that that's just the best thing about it. Awesome. Well, yeah, I really look forward to it. So those were the the six movies that we we ended up being able to see. Uh, I do want to mention that South by Southwest does hand out awards. So look at them quickly. Uh, best narrative feature went to The Fallout, directed by Megan Park. Special jury recognition for multi-hyphenate storyteller went to Kelly Callie and Angelique Molina for I'm Fine. Thanks for asking. Special jury recognition for breakthrough performance went through Rogelio Balagtas from Islands. Now, I know you saw that. So if you want to talk about that, his performance a little bit. 
I like, I said this in my review of it. It's like, I think the thing that makes the movie work is that the character that Rogelio plays is not a deadbeat. He's not what you think of when you typically think of a person that, um, lives at home well into their adulthood. Like that, he's just not the kind of person that we typically associate with that with. And that has to do with his performance, I think, because he's, he's very sweet and he's very, um, very unassuming. And when I was looking up some kind of information about Ireland, just a little bit more after I finished watching it, all he had done before this was a short film in Winnipeg. That was it. And the director to find Filipino talent, he was handing out like, um, flyers and things like that at Filipino grocery stores. Um, events that you know at churches and things like that and posting up on Facebook and then that's how he got in touch with Rogelio and when he talks when Martin Edreline talks about casting Rogelio he's saying the reason he wanted him so much was because he was just this really sweet guy that you wouldn't you wouldn't have any kind of negative thoughts towards um, and it's incredible that this is his first feature you know you don't you wouldn't associate like his performance with someone who's never stepped foot onto a, like doing a big feature film before. Um, so I very well deserved. I think he it's incredible. And I, I love that he got that too. I don't, I don't think I watched his acceptance speech for it. And he was very surprised. I don't <laughs> think he, he thought that he would get it either. That's fantastic. That's really exciting. And I'm, and I'm so happy for him then. Uh, Lily topples the world, which actually made my, uh, my list of movies I was most excited about, but couldn't see because of the geo blocking, uh, which was directed by Jeremy Workman, won best documentary special jury recognition for exceptional intimacy and storytelling went to introducing Selma Blair directed by Rachel flight. And lastly, the special jury recognition for humanity and social action went to not going quietly directed by Nicholas Bruckman. So congratulations to all the winners there. There's even more, including the short films and the uh, Texas films as well that got their own awards too. Now, before we end the show, I would be remiss not to mention the tragic events that occurred in Atlanta on March 16th, where eight people died and one was left injured, including six of them being Asian American women. We condemn this act of terror and the media's refusal to label this as a hate crime. I've donated to the AAPI Community Fund and their hashtag Stop Asian Hate campaign, and I hope listeners do too. I've included a link in the show notes and on our Instagram page on how to donate. Now, if you've been a recent listener of the show, you know that three of the most recent episodes celebrated Asian American and Japanese cinema, and it would be irresponsible for me not to help out even with my tiny platform to cultures that have given so much to the world. So we are thinking about those who lost their lives. I just want to say sorry before you wrap up there. I just want to say thank you for doing that. Um, you, you didn't have to try and spotlight on that. Obviously, it's been a bit of a weird time, I think, for Asian Americans and Asian Canadians as well. Um, so thank you for, for putting that out there. Absolutely. We, uh, we have so much to, to celebrate and so much to be thankful for from, from all over the world. And it's so unfortunate the things that are happening right now and it just it just breaks my heart uh but rachel i i want to thank you very much for coming on the show i know this won't be your last appearance but uh where can people find your work and follow you uh you can get me on twitter at underscore rachel kh i also have a website rachelkh.com i recommend films review them and just kind of go more in depth uh when i have the time to 
Uh, thank you so much for having me on again, North Dakota. Really had fun with this one. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, stay tuned for next week when we get back into our breakdowns of the Best Picture nominees category by category with new and special guests each week. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com if you saw anything from South by Southwest. Make sure to visit ContraZoomPod.com for all your CZP needs. Today's show is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you could rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, it would be a huge help for us to grow and find new listeners. Thanks for listening.